This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Zahar Mustafa, author of the novel, The Beauty of Your Face. Ultimately, I want to reveal that there isn't just one story, right? There's not a single narrative, uh, you know, being Arab American, being Muslim American, uh, not a monolith. So this feels like a story that has not yet been told, you know, as far as my reading experiences go. And uh, that, that to me felt like quite an accomplishment. We'll be back with Sahar Mustafa in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Zahar Mustafa, author of Code of the West and the Beauty of Your Face. Mustafa grew up in Chicago and is the daughter of Palestinian immigrants. She explores her heritage in her fiction. In addition to writing and editing, Zahar Mustafa teaches high school English outside of Chicago. Her novel, The Beauty of Your Face, tells the story of Afaf, a young Palestinian-American girl growing up in Chicago with parents who have a struggling marriage, an older sister who disappears, and a younger brother. The novel goes back and forth between Afaf's young life and her adult life as a principal in a Muslim girls' school, where a school shooting takes place. The beauty of your face includes the point of view of the school shooter as well as Afaf's. Throughout the novel, we learn the ever-growing impact of Afaf's sister's disappearance, the deepening homesickness of her mother, and the disintegration of her parents' marriage. We began the interview with a story I shared with Sahar. I told her that a few weeks earlier I had been in Charlotte, North Carolina, and had arrived late at night on a Sunday. I was starving, and there was no food at my downtown hotel, so I asked the front desk where I could go. There was only one diner open, and they said, walk straight there, don't go anywhere else. It was late at night, there weren't many people there, and it was very dark outside. Then I entered the diner. I ordered 
And I talked to, there was a big guy, big, like overweight, burly, strong guy at the front desk. And I started to order with him and he's like, no, I'm just the security guard. You have to go order over there. So I went and ordered. And while I was waiting for my food, I was reading your book. And he says to me, I've read a book by her. And I said, oh, you have? And he said, yeah, I read Code West in college. And I said, wow, wow. (laughs) you know, like I'm just in the middle of this (laughs) diner at like 11 at night on a Sunday. That's, you know, the only place open. And I said, how was it? And he was like so effusive. He, he was, he was a very excited when he was talking about it. And he was saying, you know, I just, it gave me such perspective on what it's like to be an immigrant. And I, I'm so curious about, you know, that lifestyle. And I didn't realize how difficult it was. And, and I said, you know, I'm interviewing her in, in a week or two for a podcast. Is there anything you'd want me to ask her? He's like, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. And he didn't even know what a podcast is. And so then I showed him on his phone what podcasts (laughs) were and showed him my podcast. And he's like, yeah, I just, I think I just want to know what it's like to be an immigrant. And it was just a really beautiful moment because it was not at all as I left the hotel and the guy is saying, you know, just go right straight to the diner to see that experience that I had. That's amazing, Mitzi. Wow. And you know that the code of the West, can I tell you, is just like my heart and soul. It amazes me that I produced this novel. That was the um, collection that I developed uh, as my MFA, you know, body of work at Columbia College. And, you know, it was one of those things, you know, I I was sort of battling the cliches of, well, that's just going to end up, you know, in a drawer. But I felt like such a late bloomer. I'm like, oh, no, this is going to happen (laughs) that I'm going to make this happen. And, uh, you know, moving from short stories to novel writing has been an interesting shift, but I'm still employing, you know, some of the, the short story strategies. But this to me is one of those moments of nasib, you know, as my mom would say, as as the women and, and men in my life would say, and it's fate, Mitzi. It's like, here you are about to develop this relationship with me. And then here's this other person who enters, you know, um, and, you know, we are just connected, you know, and I, I am definitely not, um, you know, religious as much as I am probably more spiritual. And this feels like one of those moments. So I really appreciate that. I'm really I'm going to carry that. I, I'm just so happy. And to know that it's also being read, you know, in a curriculum, I usually will have people reach out if they're if they're deciding to read a story and, you know, local high school, actually a few here in the Chicagoland area have used it. But that is such an amazing story. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I I think too, like you just have no idea how many people you touch. I mean, you put a book out in the world and maybe you get a letter from a, a, a reader every once in a while. But I mean, this guy was several years out of college. And and, and I hope um, that this novel will do that too. You know, I've people have uh, reached out a few people already. And, um, you know, it, it's such an isolating experience for the most part. And then when you realize, oh, yeah, this is going to be in the world now. And, you know, people are going to be moved by it, you know, for better or worse is, is such an extraordinary thing. So tell me a little bit about the beauty of your face. Basically, we open and we and we meet Afaf, who's the main character, and we see a majority of the book through her point of view. And she's in elementary school. She has um, Palestinian immigrant parents who are not in love. They might have had a moment in love when they met in Palestine, but then they they just had a kind of a cold in a somewhat sometimes bitter relationship against each other. And she has an older sister and a younger brother. So Nada is older. She's in high school. She's kind of cool, definitely assimilated into American life in Chicago. And she disappears at the very beginning. And her disappearance changes the foundation of the family and how they get along because she's basically just gone. And Afaf is just trying to navigate her own family. She's close to her brother Majid and we see her kind of changing because of this incident. We see her as studious. Then we see her as kind of not caring that much about her body and, and maybe being more promiscuous and, and giving up some of her 
brains and wit to just um, be complacent about her life and not even graduate from school while her brother excels. And then her parents are kind of torn apart by her father's alcoholism, her mother's mental health, and her mother always wishing that she was back in Palestine. So that's kind of the foundational plot. And then you also intersperse it with parts uh, from the point of view of this white shooter and how he sort of moved towards being uh, a bigot and a racist and a, a xenophobe and ended up at a school shooting where Afaf was the principal. Yes, very good. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me think as as you were going through how much um, Afaf um, identity is defined by absence, you know, in, in the first half of the book, you know, absence of her sister, absence of that, you know, real authentic sense of belonging, absence of uh, her mother's affection, you know, and uh, those are the things that um, sort of lead her to make bad choices, including this sort of giving, you know, up of her body to white boys later when, when, when she's in high school. One of the things that really interested me was what happens when your life is going down a certain path as a young person and one thing derails you. And I'm not saying that that one thing, the disappearance of your sister, never to basically be seen again through your whole, you know, upraising and seeing how that impacted her parents and her community. It's a big derailing, but how, yeah. how your life, you know, earlier you were talking a little bit about fate and that belief in fate, how she was going on a very clear path. And it, then it just like seemed like a 180. I think she still would have uh, been suffering because of the relationship or what felt sort of like, a, you know, only a, a practical, functional kind of relationship with her mom. But you're right about the the sister disappearing and that sort of derailing it to me it feels like it exacerbated these other things or sort of amplified the other issues especially what was going on in her parents marriage you know it was a rocky marriage you know her father doesn't become a, an alcoholic um until uh nada's disappearance but there was all already infidelity and just this intense yearning um that her mother Muntaha was was experiencing for her homeland uh, so yes, that, you know, Neda's disappearance is definitely this enormous consequential, you know, trigger. And I think uh, what's interesting here is that that experience of intense grief and loss, which, you know, a lot of people can identify with that then, you know, derails a direction that a child might have taken. I think, uh, for example, if you don't mind me adding just uh, anecdotally as a teacher, you know, students that I have who have lost close siblings or parents and have just struggled, you know, to, to make it to graduation. And uh, it is monumental, you know, be it a parent or a sibling or even a cousin. Yeah, there's um, no doubt, you know, the, the devastating effects that that's going to take on a young person. Is that what inspired you to have her sister disappear was sort of sitting back as a teacher over years and seeing how that impacted people and putting it into your fiction or was it more personal? You know, um, her disappearance for me sort of mirrors the time. So, you know, I was a child of the late 70s, you know, 80s. And, you know, it, there there felt like there was this rash of Arab girls disappearing, you know, and I just have such a vivid memory of my older sister, Hela's friend, uh, Fatima, coming over one day, just weeping, you know, we're on our doorstep in uh, you know, in the Chicago Southside neighborhood and, and telling us that her, her sister's gone, her sister ran away, you know? And so I know that that has been an experience that, that I wanted to explore in fiction. And I did finally, you know, with, with, with this particular novel, but, you know, with, uh, now that we don't know what's happened, you know, that, that is uh, a mystery, of course. So I would say that that storyline is probably a product of that. Being a teacher sort of informed the shooter frame. And um, of course, Athef's pursuit uh, in education later on in the novel. So I think there are definitely a number of things that are, you know, sort of coming into this book. And uh, they both definitely include, you know, my, my childhood experiences 
and uh, being an educator, being a mom. I have two daughters. Was there anything that you wanted to specifically say about your identity? I don't know if that's a fair question, but um, because the whole thing is an exploration. Um, But I think it's still a good question. Ultimately, I want to reveal that there isn't just one story, right? There's not a single narrative, uh, you know, being Arab American, being Muslim American, uh, not a monolith. So this feels like a story that has not yet been told, you know, as far as my reading experiences go. And uh, that, that to me felt like quite an accomplishment. So, you know, yes, it's going to be tagged as an immigrant story, as a Muslim American story, hate crime story, but, you know, it really feels unique to me. And I I felt like, you know, these characters just demonstrate there is not a single journey, you know, that this community takes. They're going to definitely see things that are familiar, members of of, uh, the Arab Muslim community. But, you know, they can also say, oh, that certainly wasn't the way I was brought up. You know, I had, you know, very functional parents and we were quite pious and devoted, you know, for as long as I can remember. Uh, And I didn't want to present a stock portrait of the shooter, you know, and I hope I, I, I haven't done that. So ultimately, you know, concerning Afaf, it still feels like a unique narrative. Her mother was a really interesting character. I mean, she blamed the father for a lot of things, for the different disappearance of her older daughter. Her husband was an alcoholic. He had a mistress. Um, she knew all this. She she was much less assimilated into the life they lived than her kids or her husband. But to me, what I found at her foundation was that she missed home so much and she could never get over it. And as much as the disappearance affected her, I think missing home was yeah. was just her foundation. And, you know, I had a lot of compassion for what her life must have been like. And I think people maybe don't think about that as the immigrant experience. Like even when you want to go and build a better life for your family and children and you come to a place like America, that longing for home that might never go away may not make the journey worth it. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about her. Absolutely. And I'm glad that that emerges. I was so interested in exploring uh, that yearning and it's so intense for Muntaha. And, and, when when Neda disappears, you know, she's part of that foundation because Neda was born overseas. And I think that's what makes it even more difficult. You know, Afaf and Majid, they come later. They're actually, you know, second generation American citizens born here. But for Mundaha, I just, I was so interested in a young woman who did not necessarily even fall under the uh, stereotypical um, journeys of Palestinian women there. Basically, you know, you were going to get married, live there, and it probably would have been a more difficult life living there under occupation. Or if, you know, you were fortunate, you would marry someone and then come here. Uh, and that person either being here already or like um, her husband, uh, Mahmoud, them venturing, you know, together out of Palestine. So for me, she also defies um, a a common narrative, I suppose. Uh, in the end, I, I, I regard her as someone who would have been content not being married or being a mother and just, you know, wanting to be home. But, uh, you know, it she she really is, you know, sort of extraordinary in that sense, because she also defies a typical loving, clinging, protective, you know, Arab mom. And um, I was just so interested in that and moved by that. And I guess that also, you know, sort of reinforces what I was trying to do with, you know, dispelling the the single narrative and even addressing, you know, mental illness. It's definitely exacerbated by her grief, by her yearning to go home. Uh, but that feels like another, you know, part of her identity that, um, you know, there, there hasn't been, you know, too much written about or written about yet. I suppose. 
so yeah, that, that intense yearning um, has always been so moving to me. And that is, you know, something that um, uh, comes through is echoed, you know, in, in the stories that I've been told, you know, my whole life and then into my adult writing life, you know, I just, I just need to ask a question and those uh, stories from the women in my life just sort of burst forth, you know, uh, now for some women, they, they can, they can see very clearly that living here for all practical purposes and for the benefit of their children, you know, was, was a very good choice, but they really have left so much behind and have, have lost a lot, you know, in that journey. And as you said, I think for Muntaha, it just wasn't worth it, you know, and she would have been, as far as I perceive her, a different person, you know, and we sort of see her return maybe to that state, you know, um, a little bit later. I don't want to spoil later events, but um, I enjoyed writing her later on. You know, she, she you know, comes uh, in, in fewer scenes, but um, it was important to me to sort of give her that, that closure. One of the things that she sort of labeled FF as was a lost girl. She's, yeah. She first she said it in, in Arabic, and then we, we learned the translation. And yeah. I think that's very true. I think um, she's lost for many reasons, not just because of the type of mother that she had or the parenting. But I, I was interested also, you know, we were talking earlier about how one thing can derail your life or, you know, put you on a different path. But I found that there was also a later event that derailed her again in a different way that maybe brought her out of being a lost girl. And that was that her father was, you know, he was a drunk. He was, you know, had this mistress. And after he had an accident where he not only got hurt, but had to do a community service, he found his way to religion and faith and brought Afaf and the brother in. And, and only it only really stuck for Afaf. Um, but that also turned her around to being less lost. And I thought, you know, that was an interesting thing to explore. For me, Afaf is embraced first by that circle of women. So it's not, it's not even that, again, you know, she has this, you know, religious awakening. It was that sense of belonging that really attracts her in the beginning, which also feels kind of feminist, I, I suppose, to me, because it, it's the women who begin to, you know, put her back on track, encourage the teaching and uh, give her what she's been lacking and, uh, you know, just this love of herself. And then, of course, you know, she starts to um, get into the rituals uh, of, of Islam and uh, the tenants, the pillars, all that comes gradually. But it is that circle of women that first embrace her and uh, don't judge her. And, you know, she is able to sort of let go of the self-loathing and, you know, enter into their circle and uh, reach her potential, which I think is so amazing. Uh, so I'm, I hope that that is largely conveyed the religious awakening, we, we begin to see that, you know, sort of solidify when she starts wearing hijab, when she goes to the Hajj. But in the very beginning, you know, after her father, you know, feels enlightened, it is um, because of the women's just pure grace and generosity of spirit that that brings her in to Islam. And and I love that it's women, you know, it's not an imam, you know, it is certainly her father at the, at the start, but it's the women who are sort of leading uh, this, this next journey for her. She has an incident before she kind of turns back to religion when she was in high school with a boy named Rami, where he is in school and she she has this habit of finding these white boys who she knows either have girlfriends or will treat her like trash. And she goes out with them and has some kind of sexual encounter with them. And she has a reputation at school. So Rami comes and picks her up and he's a pretty devout Muslim. And he brings her to this point where people make out um, in their town. And he just slaps her and tells her to basically stop acting like a slut and pushes her out of the car 
And they sort of have this relationship after where, you know, she's scared whenever she sees him and he stands in such big judgment about her. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know that Rami is even, you know, super devout as much as the cultural uh, sense of shame that girls are brought up with. Sometimes in the culture, I think um, that that's really um, what's defining his actions towards her. And, you know, he just sees her as such an affront, like, you know, to this Arab community. And yes, it's 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 certainly going to be tied to religion. But I think, again, that's probably more um, a cultural, um, you know, kind of experience. Uh, I know that with uh, within my own family, my my father and mother were always worried that we were going to be tainted, that, you know, we were going to be molested, that we were going to go out with boys and lose our virginity. So there are all these horrible things that my sisters and I internalize. And that's also what the being lost refers to, uh, you know, the um, Arabic expression, you know, hey, bin da'a, this girl is lost, also refers to that, you know, this idea that she's lost her chastity. She's lost, you know, um, her honor kind of thing. And uh, Rami is probably the worst, um, you know, sort of uh, embodiment of that, you know, hyper masculine Arabness, you know. And I did that deliberately because, you know, that that would have also been part of, you know, my my experience growing up, not firsthand like that. And uh, continues to be, of course. And unfortunately, that is also the default image that Westerners get, you know, of that hyper-masculine, domineering, um, oppressive Arab Muslim man. Um, and Rami, again, is just that that younger embodiment. Uh, and I also wanted him to represent the rejection that Afaf was experiencing from within her own community. So there's Rami, but then there's also her former best friend who is close to Rami and that that group of friends. Um, and that was also interesting to me. So she was not fitting in anywhere uh, un until she, she meets the circle of women. I did not like him. That's great because, you know, can I tell you that scene was um, difficult to write, you know, especially when he slaps her, you know, I felt that viscerally and, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it stung, you know, on, on so many levels. Uh, so, so I'm glad, you know, that that's the reaction uh, that, that you had as well. I just hope that it doesn't, um, you know, sort of enlarge the stereotype. I think other characters like Baba, who for all of his flaws is such a wonderful, I mean, he's, he, he and Majid are still you know, just such wonderful characters, even if Majid does not necessarily um, embrace Islam the way that Afaf does, he still proves himself a good brother, you know, and that was also interesting to me, this idea, again, that you don't have to be religious, you know, to be a good brother, to be a good son, to be a good human being. And there are all these things at play, which um, to me makes up a complicated and complex existence, thereby, again, you know, defying the single narrative of Arabs and Muslims. The brother basically mm -hmm. says to FF, like, you've been brainwashed when she gets into the her faith. And the mother is an atheist. She rejects it. She's she's unhappy. She's cynical. She's, you know, she's like, uh-uh. So you see this divided family but you see how the brother is like, okay, like I think you're brainwashed, but I'm still your brother. Whereas the mother, it was a bigger rift. It's interesting because I don't think I see Muntaha. I didn't mean to write her as an atheist. You know, I think, you know, she she believes in God, but is just not going to give give God any sort of power, right? Uh, because of these awful things, you know, that, that have happened to her, including, you know, uh, leaving, leaving Palestine, even though obviously it was, it was by her own will, but then that putting into motion, then the loss of her daughter and what then she sees as the, uh, deterioration of her marriage. And with, with Majid, he's interesting because he doesn't de deny his um, Arab identity. He's very much, right, you know, part of the Students for Justice in Palestine and is very ahead of news and current events, uh, but is, is secular, you know, what, what we talked about at the very beginning. And, um, you know, that is uh, an identity that I think 
um, for for some people can can clash with uh, religion. I I definitely have seen some people sort of wrestle with, you know, can't I still you know be Arab and be Palestinian and still uh, you know, be a good person and not fully commit, you know, to all the, you know, religious tenets that that make up, you know, being a Muslim. I don't know. I don't, you know, that, that that's something that I think I'm sort of exploring in this book. And again, it's so interesting to me. I certainly am surrounded by secular Muslims. And, you know, I myself, for example, I am not visibly Muslim, but I still identify. And for me, so much of it is also cultural. And uh, I think that's probably what I celebrate the most. Um, so if not, if I'm not fully committed to fasting and prayer, I, I still enjoy being part of a community that, you know, believes in God and um, his will. And I think it's it's a beautiful and welcoming community that, that that's been my experience. And I want to talk about the shooting. But before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, you said you worked at a school and Afaf is like the principal of this Muslim girls school. So can you tell me a little bit about your school and then her position in the book? So I've always taught at public schools. So I've been at this present uh, suburban public high school for my goodness, I think it's 23, 24 years now. So my my first year of teaching, I traveled over an hour for for that first job, but it was also a suburban high school. Um, So I have not had the experience of teaching in a private school, but it is modeled after a a local private uh, Muslim American school that I was actually um, offered to teach at way back when, when I first started. Uh, so the things that um, Afaf uh, is dealing with, you know, would obviously come from professional life. I'm not an administrator, but certainly, you know, I'm pretty close um, to that to that level in in the high school, and it has been, you know, quite an invaluable experience. Um, I love teaching. You know, I feel like my writing is actually a second life. You know that that I've kind of assumed and um, have cultivated. So the the school um, shooting, the gun violence is certainly something that's been on my mind, you know, for years now. But the hate crime shooting is very different from the kind of violence that I sort of dread and have nightmares about being a teacher. What I imagine is... Um, a young person coming to school with a gun. And I've actually written a story that that was part of my Code of the West collection in which a young uh, boy who's being bullied, you know, brings us a gun to school and has already started a shooting rampage when he finds himself in a room with a Muslim American teacher's aide. So she's aiding a student with autism. So it's um, this really, you know, interesting uh, and encounter among the three of them. So my uh, preoccupation with gun violence comes directly from that, from also being a mom, you know, from from being a parent and worrying about that. But uh, the other kind of gun violence, um, I I worry a lot about because um, when I go into these Muslim and Arab spaces, there's always that fear that someone's going to enter. And the novel itself was inspired by the real life um, hate killings of Yusur Abu Salha, her husband and her sister in um, North Carolina in, in Chapel Hill. So that had been on my mind. And, you know, that that was um, at the hands of their neighbor. You know, it started off with parking disputes and all of that nonsense and culminated in this horrible, horrible crime. And so, again, that that had been on my mind. And I thought, you know, what is it like then to be visibly Muslim like you saw it and her sister and then the dozens and dozens of, of Arab and Muslim relatives and friends in, in my own life. So, yeah, you know, being an educator has really informed this novel, has informed, you know, other pieces. And uh, this, of course, uh, other identity of being Arab and Muslim as well. So basically interspersed through FF's whole story is 
you know, the fact that she works at this school, they have um, one guard who works there, which in the end seems like, uh, why even have him? Um, so this, yeah. this white man comes in and shoots and kills several students and ends up pointing a gun at FF. And you do get into his head. And I'm just wondering if you'd like to talk about writing his point of view yeah. in that character. So, you know, I, I primarily write because I'm so interested in, in stories. And like I said, um, uh, Afaf was so much easier to write in subsequent drafts because I was able to get back at her origins. And I couldn't neglect that with the shooter. I do leave him unnamed. I felt like I didn't want to, um, give him that, you know, so to speak. I think I do offer up you know, um, a picture of his humanity for sure. But I, I felt almost like um, naming him, uh, it, it sort of takes away from our that story. Um, that might sound strange, but um, I just didn't want to uh, give him that. And I think that also uh, sort of preserves the maliciousness of him I hesitate to say evil because that would be too easy I hesitate to use the word you know you know crazy because that would be too easy so getting into his head allowed me uh to understand his choices right now in no way am I trying to justify his behavior I think that's also a problem that you know we have in our communities is you know when we don't give space to stories, then we're not going to understand, you know, where people are coming from. And it's just not enough, you know, that, you know, he, he becomes, um, you know, radicalized. I needed to know what came before that um, in the same way that I need to know why the young Parkland shooter did what he did on that day to his classmates, right? Why the Columbine shooters did that, why the New Zealand shooter did that in a mosque, all these things um, are interesting to me. And I'm not trying to solve, you know, any problems here. I can't. All I can offer up are these characters um, and try to understand and reveal their humanity and, you know, raise these questions. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to offer, again, any, any answers. I'm so interested in where they come from. And again, the, the choices, the forces that that bring them to this moment in time for Afaf, you know, that that fateful day and for him the same, you know. Uh, so getting into his head was definitely challenging. I, I definitely did research, too. And, you know, that's all uh, to preserve authenticity. I still think that, um, you know, as slim as his point of view is in the book, I still feel it's robust and gives us just enough so that he doesn't come off as some caricature, you know? And um, I think it's so interesting because when I was uh, querying this novel, one agent replied, and it was literally just a few days after the Las Vegas shooting. And her, her email to me was, dear Sahar, I'm sorry, I cannot stomach reading this. Good luck. And so to me, you know, she had not even received any pages yet. The way the process goes, obviously, it's the query letter first. And I was just so disheartened because I thought, so here's one person saying they're, they're not even open the book, sort of like silencing, you know, this narrative. And I, and I had other, you know, a few other editors and agents who wanted me to drop you know, the, the shooter altogether. And I said, I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, to me, that felt like it was feeding into, but we just want the immigrant story. We love that story. This makes us feel good, you know? And of course it doesn't put any onus on, you know, the white society. Uh, and I, I just wasn't going to, you know, relinquish my vision and what I thought was very important for me to tell without sounding didactic. And um, I think, again, I present him as humanly as I can. And, and hopefully that's what readers will appreciate. As difficult as, as he is, um, as much as he disrupts the narrative, which I know some readers are like, oh, I just want to keep going through with Athaf. I just got so close to her. And then here's the shooter who sort of interrupts. That's deliberate. 
that, you know, because uh, this is the reality, you know, we get those awful disruptions of violence. And I, I suppose I was sort of mimicking that also in this book. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yeah, you know, it, it was such a great request and one that um, at, I was really worried about because I thought, boy, there's so many passages. But then, uh, you know, I, I it, it felt um, quite natural to come back for me to Sula by, by Toni Morrison. This one's probably my favorite novel of, of her works. And I'm going to read up the very ending. Sadly, heavily. Nell left the colored part of the cemetery. Further along the road, Jadrak passed her by, a little shaggier, a little older, still energetically mad. He looked at the woman hurrying along the road with the sunset in her face. He stopped, trying to remember where he had seen her before. The effort of recollection was too much for him, and he moved on. He had to haul some trash out at Sunnydale, and it would be good and dark before he got home. He hadn't sold fish in a long time now. The river had killed them all. No more silver gray flashes. No more flat, wide, unhurried look. No more slowing down of gills. No more tremor on the line. Shadrach and Nell moved in opposite directions, each thinking separate thoughts about the past. The distance between them increased as they both remembered gone things. Suddenly, Nell stopped. Her eye twitched and burned a little. Sula, she whispered, gazing at the top of trees. Sula, leaves stirred, mud shifted. There was the smell of overripe green things. A soft ball of fur broke and scattered like dandelion spores in the breeze. All that time, all that time, I thought I was missing Jude. And the loss pressed down on her chest and came up into her throat. We was girls together she said, as though explaining something. Oh, Lord, Sula, she cried. Girl, 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 girl. It was a fine cry, loud and long, but it had no bottom and it had no top, just circles and circles of sorrow. Do you want to say anything else about why you chose that? <sighs> so when I read Toni Morrison and read this book in particular, in undergrad, it moved me so much because it also uh, was close to when I read The Awakening by Kate Chopin. And I was just so moved by these female relationships. In terms of Nell and Sula, you know, there is this ever-present backdrop of racism, misogyny, but their relationship was just so interesting and unique, particularly because it experienced a lot of blows, including, you know, um, Sula sleeping with Nell's husband. But this affirmation at the end that no matter what, the love between two women transcends everything is just so poignant to me and has stayed with me for years. And I think it also has crept up in, in some of the works, you know, that that um, I've put out or that I'm even currently working on. Uh, so yeah, that, that has just been something that, you know, as a professional writer, as a reader, as a woman um, has stayed with me. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This one comes from the section um, of Hedge. Again, an experience that uh, I have not had. And and, and I just wanted to make sure that it was as genuine as possible. The first time Afaf felt amen in her belly, it was like a delicate flutter of wings. A tiny human being was growing inside her, absorbing her nutrients, quietly thriving. The pain of his birth was so extraordinary. Then instantly, miraculously, it halted as soon as he slipped out and she'd been lightheaded with euphoria. But in this place, no earthly experience has prepared Hafaf for the holy city of Mecca, a marvelous clash between antiquity and modernity. Lavish hotels break up the desert sky. 
Cars speed along busy highways driven by men with women clad in black niqab, only their eyes staring back at Afaf. A gigantic clock tower, its ticking mechanism designed to last a hundred years, stands outside of the Masjid al-Haram, where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac before an angel of God intervened. The holy mosque teems with thousands upon thousands of men and women from every walk of life, every corner of the planet, moving in one direction, counterclockwise, bodies huddled close to each other in a wave of white like clouds across the sky. The opulence of the outside world is temporarily discarded. At their hotel, they bathe and dress in a pure state of ihram before they enter the, the site of the, the Kaaba at the mosque. Baba and Bilal wear white garments draped over one shoulder. Afaf wears a white cotton hijab and Abaya, her notebook of dua inside a small purse fastened closely to her hip. She and Bilal are careful not to touch, sparking any sensual contact, though they'll be absorbed by the body of strangers. Do you want to share anything else about that? I was able to glean a lot of the physicality of traveling to Hajj through my research. And then, of course, in some of the personal diaries and blogs, uh, you know, just a general sense of awe and you know, just being awestruck uh, by the magnificence, you know, of these religious structures and um, also being so overwhelmed, you know, by, by the masses. Uh, I remember a relative of mine had gone and, you know, when she came back, you know, she, she said in English to me that she had fallen in love with God. That's what it had felt like, you know, when she had approached uh, Mount Arafat, which is, you know, on, on the journey that's towards the end of Hajj. And I, I was just so moved by that. And, you know, I don't think she was able to quite articulate, um, the kind of love. So obviously, you know, when I think of being in love, I'm thinking of that as a romantic love, but I think, you know, she, um, you know, just felt like if there was anything to compare to, it was this utter love of a human being, you know, but so many times over that. And I just wanted to capture something similar. And I thought, at least for me as a mom, there was nothing more extraordinary than giving birth and loving this human being, you know, unconditionally. And so for Afaf, you know, she had had that. And uh, then to experience this, uh, which is such a miraculous um, event for her to make it there safely. And then with her father and then the love of her life, uh, Bilal, I just, I needed to compare it to something else that was, equally if not you know maybe more so you know some women will cling to oh there's nothing you know that even compares to childbirth so that felt um you know appropriate to, to to say the least and I enjoyed it you know I really enjoyed writing that particular passage where do you write so when I'm at home I always write near a window so if I'm not just sort of lounging in bed um, on the weekend, I, I have a very comfy uh, recliner and that's near a window in my loft. So I need to be near natural light to write. And, and typically I'm surrounded by flowers or plants. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? So, you know what, Mitzi, I am never fleeing writing. I'm actually neglecting other things <laughs> in order to write. So um, I, I, I know as a teacher, I would not, I, I would try to uh, get away from grading by like doing laundry, folding clothes, but I don't do that with writing. It really, uh, I don't feel a need um, to get away from it. What I'll do is um, I'll go on long walks in the morning, which helps me get into the mode of writing. So I just sort of clear my head that way. But yeah, I, I don't feel a need you know, to, to get away from it. You know, I really have to balance my time actually, because I can, you know, be at my computer for hours. So I do have to find ways of returning, you know, to life and, and giving, you know, my writing a break in that sense, you know, just to engage with my husband, my adult children, you know, and the rest of the world. So it's a good thing I teach, you know, because my time is limited. I wake up very early at 4 a.m. to write during the school year. And then on the weekends. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My very dear, very close friend, Nina Delaria, 
She is, you know, my unpaid editor. She was my first fan. So she sees everything first. And she's a beautiful writer herself. How have you dealt with rejection? I keep writing, Mitzi. You know, um, I, I, I feel bad, you know, for a little bit, but you know, that, that, that doesn't, um, derail me, you know, uh, when there are editor's notes, I really appreciate that. I respect that, but I just keep it moving. You know, there's just, there's just no time to, to wallow in that. And, uh, I've learned, uh, over many years now that it's not because my work isn't good. You know, uh, I was co-editor of an online magazine. It's also a matter of, what what our needs are, you know, as editors, um, and you know, it's it it sometimes it's it's bigger than again just the piece that I've submitted. So I don't uh, consider it, uh, you know, a a sort of personal rejection in in that regard. And what is your favorite word? Many favorite words, but I would say unfettered. I love unfettered. It's so feathery, you know, like a bird. Freedom. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This was so fun, Mitzi. Thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Sahar Mustafa, author of The Beauty of Your Face. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Dorit Rabignan, whose novel All the Rivers tells the story of a love affair between an Israeli woman and a Palestinian man. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interview that patrons will receive as extras include eight additional minutes with Sahar Mustafa, including her thoughts about 70s music and writing about Hajj, pilgrimage to Mecca. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Chuck Palahniuk, Anne Enright, Deb Olin Unferth, and Anna Solomon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.